So this week I was, uh, I was at this uh, conference. Anabaptist Financial had their uh, seminar. Whatever, what, what is it? They call, I'm not sure what it was, but I was there. Um, and there was, the first day there were 365 people there, and the second day there was about 465 people there. And I, I sat there and kind of looked at the audience, and I thought, huh, this is really interesting. Now, these people were from um, uh, Schwarzentruber. There were a few Schwarzentrubers there, Amish, to uh, a few non-Anabaptist people. And the first day I sat there and I thought, uh, the first day was for uh, business owners and key leaders. Uh, Mike is not here this morning, but Mike was there. And uh, I, I looked at the group and I thought, I wonder what the net worth is. Why does your mind always go there? I, lo- I thought, about, I wonder what the net worth is of, of the people represented in this audience. Hundreds of millions. And, huh, the second day was for employees, and I thought, I bet many of them, uh, many of them wish their net worth was that way. Um, I, I, but then something struck me, and it struck me that the richest people in the world are not those with a lot of money. They're those whose souls are at rest. That's what, that's, what, that's what true wealth is, is when your soul is at rest. Because the things, the material possessions that we have can be taken away very quickly. I mean, tornadoes and storms and things like that. Uh, by the way, the other, which night was it uh, where we had that storm? They said it went, there was a tornado spot. I turned on WKLM and they said a tornado spotted near Farmerstown. And I began to pray for the church. It was heading northeast. I prayed for the church building. I wanted to come here. And, and one of the places, one of the ways that our hearts become more at rest is through worship. If, you, if we think about what, what God wants from us as we gather together, it's that our hearts find a place that is safe. A, a place where we can rest, where we can appreciate the presence of God and the reason I say all that is to think about the song that we were sta- singing. So you all were singing along. It's an old familiar one. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And I was thinking about that when we were singing there, and I thought, do we really stand in the presence? Do we understand that Jesus is right here with us? And the sermon lends itself well to talking about that. So please turn uh, to Ezra 6. We have been uh, galloping through Ezra, uh, at least in my understanding of it, maybe not in yours, but, uh, so, but we've been going rather fast. Now we're going to slow down and just look at one small piece of it today. Ezra 6. Uh, turn your copies of Scripture there. Now let me also just think about a little bit about some Old Testament history. How, does, how do the pieces fit together? Uh, it's always helpful for me to understand that. First of all, uh, I, I've thought about r- recommending this, and this, is, this would be a good idea if you want to get kind of a scope of the way God works. Begin reading in Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles is a retelling. So, so this is how the Hebrew mindset works. They believed that in their history, they found meaning. They found meaning in the stories of history, because in the same way that God moved in the past is how he will move in the present. And in the future, for that matter. 
And so they found a great deal of solace. And, and they're, not, they're not afraid to continue to tell the stories of their history. And they, they, they understood that those things shaped them. And so you have Genesis, Exodus, you have those f- first five books. And then you have the kings. And then you have uh, Samuel and the kings, Joshua, Samuel and the kings. And then you have the book of Chronicles. Chronicles is actually a retelling. Chronicles, do you know, does anyone know what the first word of Chronicles is? First Chronicles, but Chronicles. It's all one book in the original. But does anyone know what the first word is without looking? Well, you should read your Bibles, but anyway, it's uh, the first word in Chronicles is Adam. This is how it begins Adam, Seth, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Mahalo, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamach, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it goes on. And so, so it's saying this is the story of the Old Testament. And then in the whole scope of it, what you should do is read Chronicles. And Chronicles, Second Chronicles ends with them going into captivity. And then you should read Daniel. At least the first six chapters of Daniel. The historical part. You, could, you should actually read uh, I love reading the book of Daniel. I love that second part. It's all these wild things. Uh, Lord of the Rings kind of creatures in, in the second half of Daniel. Uh, but so you, you, the book of Daniel, Chronicles and Daniel, and then Ezra 1 to 6. So at the end of the sermon today, what you should now do, uh, there, there's actually a fairly large gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And Esther fits into that space. So remember, Esther is a queen back where they were taken captivity, or they were taken in captivity. So you should read Chronicles, then Daniel, then Ezra 1 to 6. Uh, and you should also read Haggai and Zechariah in there, but it's a limited amount of time you have. Um, and then you should read the, the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then finish with Malachi. And that would give you the whole scope of the Old Testament just like that. And, and uh, it's a good way to actually think about it. It's one of the things I'm trying to do as we preach through this series is just to get a, a feel for it. So we've, we've covered the first section of the book rapidly. Today we're, we're going to slow down and, and look at a, a small section. Um, so here's what has happened so far. They, there was a first return under Zerubbabel. They built the foundation of the temple and then had a worship service. Remember the worship service? The worship service where the old man cried and the young, young people praised God. And you couldn't tell the, vo- the difference from a distance. And their enemies actually heard them worship at a distance. And, uh, and then they, they laid the foundation. And then they got distracted and went home and built their houses. And then Haggai and Zechariah come along and say, oh, Wait. You guys live in really nice houses, but there is no house of God. You have ceiling, uh, you have paneling in your houses. Uh, they must have lived in the 1970s, but anyway. Um, you have paneling in your house, and, and, and God doesn't even have a house. And so it, it took the voice of the, prophet, the prophets to call them back to the pro- process. And so then when they wanted to start, uh, which was last, two weeks ago, there was significant opposition to the work from outside sources. Um, and two Sundays ago, I suggested that the opposition came in, in kind of a, a pattern way. First of all, they tried to be deceptive and say, oh, now wait a minute. Let's, you know what? Let us help you with the work. And the people of God said, no, that isn't going to work. 
And then they said, uh, well, you're never going to get this done. I mean, why are you doing this anyway? And, uh, and then the third thing they did is go to the king and directly accuse them and say, uh, by the way, I also looked at what they said. They are building a house with great stones and big timbers. That's what they said to the king. And uh, afterwards, I was thinking about this, and Narita reminded me, like, it's easy for us when we think about opposition to the work of God to pin it to people. Okay, so, so when, I, when I ask you, um, what is the, the greatest opposition to us moving forward as a group? What is the greatest opposition? It's easy for us to kind of look at other people uh, who have been a part of our lives or are part of our lives and say, they're the problem. But do you know that is not biblical? Uh, New Testament, the New Testament then takes these Old Testament stories and says there's a bigger world. It's the people of God. You're now the people of God. And the opposition that is the greatest against you is not flesh and blood. You wrestle not against flesh and blood, but the prince and the power of... So you wrestle against the darkness, and the darkness starts inside you. The biggest opposition to us moving forward as a group is sitting right here. And it's our fears and our lusts and our evil desire. So you think about it in two ways. You think about it in, in, uh, on two sides. There's the fear on one side where you say, nah, wait a minute. Uh, you know, what are people going to think? And, and uh, oh boy, what if, 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 I, if I really say that or if, if I do that, people are going to think, uh, you know, if I wear a red tie to church, people are going to think I'm trying to show off. Or whatever. So on the one hand, you have these fears. You're always worried about or fearful about something. On the other hand, you have this kind of selfish lust. Now, I'm not talking about that in the terms of sexual. I'm say, it, it can be that, but it's much bigger than that. It's the things I go after, the idols in my life. And idols can be anything. Idols are as real in our world as they were in their world. Um, they're, but they're not maybe statues. They're the, but they're things we create. And that's what uh, I, I, I return us to that whole thing about the about the, uh, uh, how much wealth was sitting in front of me in that group, it's easy for us to assume that once we get to a certain place, and so we set that up as our goal, and our, uh, our goal keeps moving away. Now there's, okay, there's nothing wrong with being, I like rich people. I like hanging around rich people. And I like when they give me some of their money. But anyway, um, but okay, I, again, money is not the problem, but it's our own hearts that are the problem when we pursue those things. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so, so that becomes an idol. It can be anything. It can be, um, it can be uh, status. You, you put the whatever it is. But there's often these two pieces that, war, that are at war within us. Our fears and our evil desire, this lust. And those are the true enemy. They're what distract from the work of God. What keeps you from throwing yourself 100% into the work of God? It's your fears and your, your evil desire. And so I'm calling us to say that when we think about the enemies in Ezra and Nehemiah, that we need to think about that as those things are, and they, they play the same game. They, 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 they begin by saying, uh, you know what, maybe I can do both of them. You know, maybe I can really... Uh, uh, Worry about what people think. So, so okay, so fear. Let me just tell you my own story. This, uh, this whole thing about failure. This, this whole theme of failure in my life is really big. Uh, I like looking well in people's eyes, but I, I then set up this kind of 
status and I never quite reach it. And I always think I am such a failure. I'm just the biggest failure in the world. And sometimes I am. But remember what I said is one of the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah? It's that in the middle of our failure, God's mercies are there. All right? But so I went to SMBI. I taught there for a number of years. And I went. And the first term I went, uh, it was spectacular. I had this class. At the end of the six weeks, everybody was talking about Marcus's class. And, uh, you know, there, uh, it was minor prophets, by the way, the class. And I had studied like you would not believe it for that class. I know more about the minor prophets than, uh, than I should probably. But uh, I had studied and studied and studied. And it was really engaging. And a good group of students. And it, I, I mean, I was just, I thought I'd arrived, you know. So the next time, the next, uh, the next time term began on Monday, I looked at the registration. And I was teaching Genesis the next semester, and, and there was, they had to put a limit on the class. So many people signed up for the class. 30-plus uh, people. And Val kept asking me, should I, should, can we go up a little bit? Uh, we had always said that 24 to 26 was kind of limit. And it was this, is it 32? And I, yeah, sure. Go. You know, it just made me feel really good. I, I am not a failure at this. And I went into that class and had my first class period, and I kind of noticed... Uh, and it was at the optimum time of day, 10.45 in the morning. The first class was at 7.30, and the, the, the worst class to teach was the one right after lunch. But anyway, um, and it was at the optimum time of the day, and I thought, wow, you know, people are, I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm not a failure. And do you know what, about, uh, about midway through that class, about the third week, I, I left the classroom, and I went to my office, and I remember slamming my office door shut and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? I would teach my heart out, and people would sit back there, and they'd go, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was boring them to death, and, and I was failing. I was, I was an, uh, and I remember we lived in this awful little cabin, and I remember going down to the cabin, throwing myself across the bed, and saying, God, I am a failure. I am a failure. And I, I'm no good at anything. I'm no good at anything. And I just kept, you know, do you do it? Does this ever happen to you, all of you? But I just, I was just this, in this place of just saying that there is nothing inside me. And, in the, and I cried like crazy. In the middle of that, I, I heard this kind of, the voice of God. I don't know. It wasn't audible or anything, but God spoke to my spirit. And he said, you know, uh, I'll take care of you. But you, you do really need to admit that you're not very good at this. And that you are a failure. And, and I did, and I wrote a letter of resignation, and I took it up, and I gave it to Val, and I said, uh, I'm, I'm a failure at this. I'm not getting through to the class, and, and maybe it's better if I wouldn't do this. And he kind of looked, and his great wisdom looked across the table at me and reached out and put his hand on my shoulder and said, You are finally at the right place. And you know what? That is what we all, that's the place we all need to, that the enemy, the enemy, the true enemy is the evil within us. And it begins its process by deception, and then it uses this kind of discouragement, and, and then it's just, just a direct accusation. It's that same process. And then I, and I, I began to this process of unpacking my own life, by the way. I'll just say this yet. When I was a, when I was in my middle teens, something really traumatic happened to my family. And in that process, uh, I lost my father in a lot of ways. And when that, as that process happened, I began to look for 
affirmation and place through work and and people made rude comments and it just it just created this cycle within me where I, I was so driven by that fear. And in in a lot of ways that fear inhibited the building of the temple more than anything else. The people of God. And so when we think about these things and we, we put them in place in our lives Let's understand that this is really real. This is not something that happened back there, but this is really real and it's happening within us. So let's, uh, let's read the passage here in, uh, in Ezra chapter 6. I'm going to read from 13 to the end. Okay, the setting of this is that this uh, Tatnai, who uh, was a governor of the province beyond the river, that was the name of the province, beyond the river, uh, it is a... It is a uh, vassal state of, of uh, the King Darius. And uh, they, they, had, they had sent a letter back. They had heard the initial worship service had convinced the people to stop. And then there was a 20-year period between the laying of the foundation of the temple and the building and this moment here. So this is 20 years later after that first worship service on the Temple Mount. And then remember, they had, they had sent word back and said, these people are building a, a big house, and they're going to they're gonna rebel again. And then Darius had went through the, the, order, uh, the orders, and he had found a place, and he had said, uh, uh, oh, we had promised them we would build this. And by the way, now we're going to send all, everything back that belongs to them. We're going to send it all back. And he said, and in addition to that, if you inhibit the building of the prop, of of the house of God, the Jewish house of God, I'm going to make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, uh, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and sharpened, and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill, a manure pile. Uh, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out his hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make this decree. Make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then verse 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shezer Bozonai and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God, the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, sorry, king of the Persia, and this house was finished in the third month of, third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of the God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I want us to notice several things about the story here. First of all is that uh, they, they built the house of God. So they actually built it. And by the way, they, they, they built it with the money of the people who had been opposing them. I find that really powerful. Like God said, okay, I, I'll deal with these people. And I'll take their money. And, and, and it's like the children of Israel. Remember when the children of Israel left Egypt, what did they leave with? Does anyone remember? All the, all the Egyptians' assets. They left with it. Now, later, they, uh, they b- took those assets and put them together and built, built two golden calves. And then God made them eat the assets. Do you remember that? Moses, I, I think this is fascinating. Moses came down off the mountain, and, he, and he, he was so mad, he threw down the stones. And then they ground up the two golden calves and mixed it with water and made the people eat it. You talk about, so, so you're idols, you know? Get out your pocketbook, grind it up, and eat it. Oh, whatever. Um, he said, you want that? I'll give it to you. Here, eat it. It's almost like God... But, but stop and think. So, so God had made provision for his people. When they left Egypt, they devastated Egypt. They, they left, and Egypt is devastated. They have all the assets of Egypt. Now, they misuse those assets, which is, is another story. But in the same way here, when, the, when it's time to build the temple, they probably don't have the assets to build the temple. And, and they, they started laying the foundation by faith. Maybe they're the kind of people who said, oh boy, we laid the foundation, now we don't have anything. And God, in his sovereignty, had wanted to supply for them, and they, they just went home and built their houses. And sometimes when uh, you cannot plan everything out about the kingdom of God, because sometimes the God asks us to move into things where we don't know the end result. And we don't know, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to solve this? How are we going to pay for this? Well, you know what? God is asking us to move into it. Now we have to move carefully and thoughtfully, but sometimes God asks us to move. Oftentimes God asks us to move into something where we don't know the end. And when we do that, we allow His sovereignty and His power to fill it. Does that make sense? Remember the three themes in Ezra and Nehemiah. God's sovereignty, that He knows the end. He knows everything. He is Alpha and Omega. And, and in his sovereignty, he is in control. And God's power as his people obey him. And then God's mercies in our failures. You know, the people had, had, had stopped. They had, they had given up heart. They had given up heart. And in, in that place, God should have cut them off. But God in his mercy did not, and he does not to us. So, uh, so the, the pagans paid for them. Uh, you notice they said... Uh, uh, if you don't pay for this, you're going to be in trouble, the king had said. And then they, they had built and prospered it through the voices of Haggai and Zechariah. And uh, it was, and it's very progressive in, in the way the passage is worded. That they b- finished their building by the degree of the God of Israel and by the degree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So it's like the degree of the God of Israel. What does that mean? Well, God had asked them to do it. Well, the kings came right in underneath that and gave it. And then they had this building dedication. Now remember, this is the second temple. Does anyone know how many animals were sacrificed when Solomon built his temple? Remember when Solomon built his temple? In uh, 1 Kings, it's where Solomon has this grand dedication. David had wanted to build it, and then he didn't, but then Solomon comes along and builds it. Does anyone remember how many animals were sacrificed 
at that place? That day? 144,000, well, uh, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine the blood running off the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? The altar was too small, it said, to take all the sacrifices, but some way they did. And, and we can kind of, we look kind of back and, and it was like, how gory. Uh, by the way, they're also very careful to record there are 712 animals that are uh, offered in this event. It is, uh, I looked at the percentage difference. It is 0.005% of what Solomon did. And so it, it is almost like God is saying, and, and it, it's an opportunity for them to remember the, the, the past glory of God being present there, and, 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 and then God is moving them to something different. I don't know all the... Uh, I, I read one place where they said, taking the amount of people that were in Israel in the time of Solomon and the amount of people that are in this return, this is actually proportionately more per person than it was in the first one. But uh, think about this. This, uh, but but it it is a sense where uh, that God is saying it. This is going to cost you something. Worship is never free. Worship always costs something. Uh, the, uh, note also that note the twelve male goats. Why twelve? Not profound, but why twelve? says it. Tribes of Israel. But how many tribes have returned? Not all twelve returned. See, the, there were ten and a half taken captive first, and they're sp- spread out through the, all the land. And then the two and a half, or two, uh, uh, Judah and, and uh, which other tribe? I've lost it. Benjamin and Judah. The two, by the way, the two sons of... Uh, both of them are the only two sons of, uh, yes, that one lady. By the way, I was once in a Schwarzenegger wedding where the preacher had Leah married to her son. And anyway, that's beside the point. I, I couldn't think of her name. But uh, so what I'm saying is there are 12 he goats and they're for each tribe of Israel. And see, this is the scapegoat, this, this idea that there's, there has to be a sacrifice for the sins. And what the people are doing is recognizing that we have been sinful. We, have, we need something to deliver us from our own sinfulness. This, the, 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 the 700 other animals were celebrations of joy and celebrations of excitement. But these 12 are recognition that we are very broken people. And that God is calling his people together. It doesn't matter what tribe of Israel you're from. And notice, this is not all Jews doing this either. There are other people in there. God never intended for the Old Testament to just be about Jews. In, in the first Passover instituted in Joshua, uh, where it talks about it in Numbers, by the way, Numbers 9, I think, it says if there are other people, it, ta- it talks about the people of God, the people of Israel, and then it says if there are people from the outside who are in your camp and they're willing to follow the ways of God, they can t- partake in Passover. It's, it's the later Jewish religious system who narrowed it down. God never intended, God intended his kingdom to be wide open for anyone to come into it. And it is so right now. Note, he says, it was eaten by the people, in verse 21, by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them. 
since their return. It's people from the outside, maybe scattered Jews, but it's also this understanding that this is the people of God. We are the true Israel here, and so therefore we need to, have, we need to be aware of our sins. And when every person in that audience, they saw those 12 goats, they understood that those goats are paying the price for their sins. It's a guilt offering. And all of us feel that. All of us feel our own brokenness. All of us feel our own sinfulness. If we went around this room and said, how many of you had a perfect week? Never got mad, never thought wrong thoughts, never, cut, uh, never did anything like that. Well, if, if you're here and you, you, you had a perfect week, just leave now. You're in the wrong place. You should be in heaven. But all of us have these moments where we think, ah, oh, I got it wrong. And, but there, you know what? Uh, Jesus is that sacrifice today. And when we, when we kind of take the, when he takes, God takes this into the New Testament, he says, yes, you are a broken people. Yes, historically you have been a people of sin. But there is a deliverance, a way. And so then their first act, their first corporate act of worship is to keep the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Do you know what the, what did the Passover celebrate? What did the Passover celebrate? Their deliverance from Egypt. What is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? For, for seven days they don't eat leaven. Do you remember when that was instituted or why it was instituted? It's to remind them of their wilderness journey, how God delivered them and God sent manna, God supplied for them. So, so he's saying, I delivered you and I supplied for you. And, and I want you to keep that. And so uh, think about the joyful occasion. There are six occasions in the Old Testament where the Passover is celebrated as a corporate group. Normally it was families who celebrated the Passover together on a certain day, the 14th day of a certain month. And so, so each family would do it. Suddenly they're doing it together. And there are only six occasions in the Old Testament, and they're all times of great deliverance. And so when we celebrate communion in a few weeks here on, on Easter, the Easter weekend of Easter, we're going to celebrate our own Passover. When Jesus comes to the end of, uh, end of his life, he, he uses Passover to go into his week. But so, so Passover is about our deliverance. It's about us being freed from the power of sin. It's about that blood that was shed for us, that perfect lamb of God. And then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, for all the people of Israel there, they understood that, that God was saying, I provided for you for 40 years in the wilderness. You, you had everything you wanted to eat. Your shoes didn't wear out. Your clothes didn't wear out. And nothing like that. I supplied for you. And I, in the same way that I did that in the past, I'm going to do it again. That's why we celebrate these holy days. That's why we celebrate the communion. Do it in memory of what I've done for you, Jesus says. And so, so as, we, as we go through our own life, it is, we need to be talking regularly about the ways that God has delivered us. How he's brought us out of Egypt into, into, the, into the promised land. I, I once took a class on Old Testament prophets at Ohio State taught by a practicing Jew. And uh, I was the only known Christian in a class of about eight people. And uh, it was Saturday. It was the most awful time in the world to have a class. But Saturday mornings from 9 to 12. And uh, she, she was very, she was an observing Jew. And she, but she, she had a lot of good things to say. And at the end, she'd have these uh, dialogues about the theology behind certain things. And then she'd say, now I'm going to look to Marcus to give the Christian perspective. It was so much fun. And, uh, 
But one thing she said that I will never forget. She said, the Jews are about the Passover. And, and you Christians and you Americans don't understand that. And, I, and she said, it, this is about deliverance. And you have no good model for that. Maybe George Washington, she said. I want to say, no, Jesus. I did actually say, well, as believers, we say that when Jesus died and took all that, that, that the world could offer in death, he took death, the ultimate enemy of mankind, and he conquered it. That's deliverance. I don't have to worry about dying. She goes, huh, that's an interesting perspective. Um, but but she said, she, this, this comment about the, the Jews look back. They were not a nation. They were slaves. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And then God, in his providence and his sovereignty and his power and his mercy, called them together and he led them out of the land and he delivered them from the power of the Egyptians and he gave them the freedom to choose to follow him. Now, we know that they, they took an entire generation. But in the same way... God looks at us and he says, you were bound by the power of sin. And by the way, I don't care when you became a Christian. I don't care uh, if you have a particular point in time. But, but Jesus offers us deliverance from the power of sin. And all of us as adults, that might be younger than some for some all of us as adults make a choice at a time or another to say, I choose to follow the deliverer, Jesus. And, and when we do that, we are, uh, we are being very Jewish in the sense that we're saying the power of sin bound us. We were slaves to it back here. And God delivered us. And the freest people in the world are those whose hearts are free in Jesus. That's freedom. Because I don't have to fear anymore. I don't have to worry. So the Passover is about that. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is then a celebration of the fact that God took care of us. And in the same way that God took care of his people back then, he wants to take care of us now. He's saying, church, people, brothers and sisters, join me as we journey through the promised land. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I'll give you everything you need. It may look differently than you think it should, or that you think it will. But as we journey into this place where we have never gone before, which is life, I'll be there for you. I'll take care of you. And that's powerful, because that means we can walk into the dark places in our own lives, the dark places in our community, and the dark places in our world, and we can say, there's freedom to be found. And that freedom is found not in a system, not in a series of sacrifices, but in a person, Jesus Christ. Come join us as we walk together into learning to know more about him. And so as they celebrated this powerful thing, by the way, there's one thing missing in their temple. Does anyone know what's missing that was in the first temple? It's still missing. The Ark of the Covenant. And inside, that was the very holy place. And we are being set up in Ezra and Nehemiah to point forward. If the Ark were there, God would have had to make a choice. Where is my presence? Is it in my son or is it in the Ark? 
if the ark would have been there, the, the ark being missing is intentional by God. It's His sovereignty because it's leading us forward into about 400 and some years later when He will come and be present. See, the ark was about the presence of God. And so He's pointing us forward and saying, the ark is no longer there. But there is coming a time when the ark will truly come to earth. My presence will be here. This is a beautiful portion of Scripture as God's people in faith become much more aware of the mercies of God. They sacrifice. They say, we need God's mercies. Here's 12 goats. And the power of God in deliverance when they celebrate the Passover and then the sovereignty of God at being freed from the power of their opponents and their enemies and that God will supply for them. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we go forward that your heart and your power and your, that we would have the faith to follow. Lord, I, I pray for each of us as we wrestle with the enemy within. I pray that, they would, uh, that we would be honest about that and that we would be delivered from the idols and delivered from the fears in our own lives. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, Tim.